Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Gonna Podcast. This week's guest is John Ward, CEO of Livingston Football Club and Spring Group. John Ward, welcome to the I Was Gonna Podcast and thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, getting used to these uh, Zoom and team call type uh, scenarios, so it's uh, it's become a way of life now. I think it sure has, John. And just on that, John, the first question I I I, I really don't want to ask this first question at all. We want to be able to put it away, but it's such an unusual time. The pandemic's got uh, other ideas. We thought this might last for four weeks. Asking this question, but how have you found that this unusual time, and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? It's, it's, yeah, it has definitely been a strange time. There's no question about that. Um, I've been reasonably lucky that I've had, I've been involved in a couple of different businesses that have had were either key worker businesses or were involved in projects that allowed me to to remain working. So I've effectively worked every day um, since the pandemic uh, since the pandemic started. Which um, for my own sanity is is I'm, I'm quite glad about to be truthful. Yeah, we've had so uh, you know the. the since a bit since I sold my business and kind of b- became unencumbered for that back in like 2015, I've kind of managed my own investments. So I've got involved in different businesses as opportunities come up. Um, and one of the, one of those is you know it's back in what I was doing before, which is aerospace industry. Um, and we were basically doing we were involved in the ventilator project at the start of things, and we were involved in supplying some of the manufacturing companies that were sort of key to the either health or <coughs> defence stuff. So, yeah, I've been reasonably busy right through. Um, obviously busy with the football club as well because the, the pandemic brought all sorts of issues around how we were going to continue to play, A, how we were going to end the season last year. So that, that seems like a million a million years ago. Yeah. Um, and all of the noise that was that was on around that and how, you know, the various Zoom meetings with, with the SPFL uh, fellow, fellow CEOs and with the SFA and with the SPFL and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and of course, the thing that become, you know, the thing that become prevalent at that time was that we were going to have to be doing testing. We were going to have to be trying to look at making the, the stadium safe. Um, and you know, again, at that time, you had no idea, as you said in your introduction, Stuart, you had no idea this was going to last over a year. Um, so we were sort of provisioning a well, you know, will we have people in in three months? Will we, will we, you know, will we do this, that, and the next thing? And we got very lucky as a club, Livingston. Um, I, w- I was doing some business with a company called um, Diagnostics for the Real World, who actually now make the point of use testing for the NHS. So they do the the point of use testing for for um, uh, NHS staff and in hospital wards, and it's run by a, a, a really impressive eighty-year-old uh, uh, Chinese lady called Helen Lee. Um, and I managed, between myself and David Martindale, we managed to persuade her to uh, lease or sell at the time, uh, lease the machines to us and allow us to do our in-house testing. So we're, we're the only professional club and, and probably the only sports club in the whole of the UK that's doing that. And it's been a massive advantage for us uh, in terms of, you know, everybody else is tied into a contract, which, you know, that, that makes sense. But they are... Uh, they're having to do tests and then send the stuff away and you know there was some team problems at the start with tests and getting results back and all this kind of stuff whereas at Livingston we we're testing in the stadium and we're doing same day tests we get a result back in two hours with the machines so I was back and forward there um yeah it's, it's, it has been a busy time it, it, John just on the football side of things I, I, I mean you raised a point about how 
hectic, I suppose, at the beginning it was. I think reflectively, however, both Gola and I are football fans. But I think if you look in, in retrospect of how well, in some respects, it was handled, you know, considering we've never been there before, and yet we managed to get football played. Obviously, last season was a bit more contentious, but this season we've managed to get things developed relatively quickly. I've been surprised at how well the SBFL and the teams have managed the situation. Is there anything else from your own perspective that you'd like to add to that? No, it's been impressive. I mean, at the start of the season, we were all concerned, um, you know, there was because... Uh, the Scottish, the SFA doctor, John McLean, he, he was right at the forefront of this and talking to government and he had Jason Leach coming on calls with us and, uh, you know, the, the, the engagement they had was very, very good um, and the planning that we were putting together was very good and, uh, they, you know, they had a, we were one of the first clubs that had developed a blueprint for how we were going to manage people coming in and out of the stadium and, you know, we're doing, when you go in, you get your temperature checked and, you're, you know, there's one-way systems and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so, they were very good in laying down the, 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 the blueprint for that and, and keeping us updated on it. So, yeah, it's, that's one of the aspects of of um, how the football authorities have managed the game this season is that we've got through the season um, and it's, you know, we've managed to, to, to stay on track and get to where we are just now, which is really impressive, to be honest. Just to, to add on that, Joanne, I mean, I mean, first of all, congratulations to Livingston. FC, you did really well, and actually, I thought you were going to win a cup. I was surprised that uh, St Johnson got the double this year, but uh, but well done though. Anyway, I thought you you certainly gave a lot of the bigger teams or the more better financial teams a real fright and a real leveler the way you played. So it was good stuff. I think. Um, and and I, I, I was obviously I was looking at the Livingston uh, website and seeing a lot of the. The, the thrust of what you are interested in doing and trying to, your goal is to try and get to that 5,000 mark for season ticket holders. Um, and obviously that that uh, is also giving you the plan to get the right longevity for the club as well, because you, you you certainly uh, acquired the club in a difficult time uh, and, and you've actually managed to, to turn that around. Uh, could you relate to that as well? Because obviously this, this is a bit of a stumbling block with the pandemic on that road, that pathway you had, but uh, how do you relate to the fact you picked the club up and and uh, you've been trying to make sure it's viable through this period? That's been tricky. Yeah, it, it has been. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I got involved in Livingston as a sponsor, really, um, and I got, you know, the twice I came into it, twice I got involved sponsoring it. I was running a company Back, back when they went into their second administration and they started that season with no, foot, with no football shop sponsor. And our company, Fast Tech, you know, we were, we'd done a lot of work with what was now Celex, but had been Ferranti. Um, and there was that kind of synergy there. We, we were right in the corner for the club and, you know, we were a, quite a small company doing quite smart things, but our main competitors were fairly large PLC type companies. Um, so when we were bringing, when somebody was coming to do an, an audit for us, you know, um, one of our big customers like like uh, Celex or like BAE Systems or whatever, when they were coming to do an audit, you know, our place was tiny and it was you, you had them in and out in about 15 minutes just looking at your processes and systems. So we used to take them around the corner to the club and use the boardroom there and do a presentation and have lunch and all that kind of stuff because we had no meeting rooms. Um, and that's where our relationship sort of started with Livingston. And 
I got back involved again in 2015 because, again, it had been kind of mismanaged. The directors were all taking each other to court um, and the church sponsors had pulled out. Um, so my son had just, I, this is when I started doing sort of self-investment, and I just got involved with my son in a small brewery in Leith. He'd come back to Australia where he'd been working, uh, and he was all over the kind of craft brew scene at the time, which was coming really into vogue in Scotland. So we set up this small business called Crafty Brew, and we became short sponsors that season for Livingston. And during that season, uh, it, it became apparent as a short sponsor, you know, where people were kind of taking me out of the boardroom at lunch at the half time and stuff. Um, and it became apparent that it was basically a couple of volunteers and some fans that were running it. Um, and I would be in the stadium and then, you know, one of the guys who was a club secretary was very diligent and professional guy. And he was sort of saying, oh, I'm a bit concerned. We're, we're, we're kind of struggling to pay bills and, we're, we, you know, we've got sheriff's officers coming in and we've got all sorts of issues around how we manage. We don't have full-time staff here. They had a, sort of half, they had a part-time girl in the, in, in the downstairs. So I had just... I had just um, basically, I'd sold my business and had been on what they call garden leave. Um, and I think I lasted about, I was supposed to do that for a year and I lasted about three weeks. Uh, and I thought, I, I need to get back to doing something because, you know, I, I need to do something and, and, and get some work done because I, I need to avoid daytime telly and alcoholism, basically. Um, and, and so I ended up kind of, uh, I got involved in my son's business, I acquired a, 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 another business and I had already acquired a um, my father-in-law's business, um, which is a, a long separate story. So I'd, I'd stuff to be doing. Um, and when Livingston sort of approached me, or when they, they sort of said, we could do with some help here, um, I had a look at their systems and they had, you know, they, they knew they knew software system. Nobody, had, nobody knew how to get into their accounting system at the time. They had guys who were directors and ex-shareholders who liked to turn up on a Saturday with a, a blazer and a tie on. But one really had no had no idea how to do the work and pay the bills and invoice customers and stuff like that through the week. So I kind of moved that onto a, a, a cloud-based system. And, you know, my office here is in Bathgate. I've, I've worked from here just to get the house most days. Um, and I was able to start doing their accounts and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's just been, you know, Livingston has been a... a we were, no one was more surprised than us when we got the, the, the promotion into the Premier League. Um, and then suddenly you start you have to start behaving like um, adults as opposed to running. I, I, you know, I, I remember saying in one of the interviews afterwards that we'd been running the club on, uh, you know, uh, on volunteers and a wee bit of sellotape. That's you know, patching things together and, and uh, just keeping the thing afloat. And suddenly we had to, you know, we had to really think about serious stuff like infrastructure with a couple of stands that had been neglected is the nicest way to put it but you know the, the they were rusted and the pipes were all burst and all this kind of stuff so David Martindale and I you know we pulled in favours we kind of got anybody that we knew that was in building and we'd, we'd offer them free advertising get them in to get the stadium ready for the start of the, the, the first Premier League season so it's been it, you know it's, it's been a lot more work than I thought it would be for something that I was doing voluntarily yeah. but in terms of the community thing, you know, Livingston is, I, I, I've been on the children's panel in Livingston for 15 years. We do, you know, it's one of the most deprived areas in, in central Scotland, uh, um, at, at some areas of it. Um, and I, I just think West Lothian, West Lothian needs to have something better and smarter for our children here. And we have to, we have to have better plans for them and better facilities for them. John, yeah. uh, can we, uh, I'm sure we'll get back to Livingston. You, you talk extraordinarily passionate about it, but I'd like to sort of take it right back from, from a personal perspective, John. If I can ask you, you attended school in Bathgate 
And how did you find your education experience? I think I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in a council estate, Bog Hall, which was they basically built these estates when uh, when we were talking earlier about nationalised industries. British Leyland was the biggest employer in Bathgate, and they built these housing schemes, you know, Bog Hall, Belvedere, um, Blackburn, and it was to to basically house incoming workers. Um, so you know everybody lived at the same level, like kind of. You know, nobody was particularly wealthy, or, or it was, there was poverty. There was all of the issues that you have in, in working class Scotland. Um, so we, we were quite a big family, and you know, didn't have an awful lot of money. And when you went to school, you were kind of invisible. It was, it was it's a sort of I was really shy. Um, I think I went to school uh, with national health glasses on and a bit of sellotape holding them together, so it doesn't make you attractive to girls. <laughs> it's kind of you know, so, so you have this innate shyness, and and I think my all I remember for school is kind of just not want to put my head above the parapet, so I wouldn't need to put my hand up even though I knew answers to questions and that kind of stuff. So school was no was not a great experience until I think I found myself in high school. Um, and, uh, in, in Bathgate and St Mary's um, and I kind of woke up in third year and I was in what they called remedial class then because again because I'd made myself invisible in school um, I'd kind of just fallen between the cracks and I see that a lot on the children's panel kids that, that have got confidence kids that don't feel able to speak and, and don't feel seen um, it becomes a huge problem for them in school um, so I kind of woke up in third year and I'm in a classy you know I, I you know, kind of a class clown and I'm in a classy guys that are, you know, pinging bits of metal at each other, hitting each other with rulers and, you know, just that we were giving stickle bricks at every class to play with kind of thing. Um, and I had a look about and I thought, no, I, I, I need to do something about this. So I went to my guidance teacher and sort of said, look, I, I think I could, if I, if I really, if I really got the finger out and really started studying and, and started to pay attention, I think I could get O, o grades and they were kind of, and I don't think you could. Um, but they let me do it and, and you know, amazingly enough, I, I, I kind of, once I started reading and once it started to make sense to me, it was, because I had been, although I'm talking about, I'm in this class at school, I had been going to the local library, basically dogging the school and going to the local library just to get a bit of peace. Or I'd, you know, I'd go there at lunchtime and sort of take a couple of hours in the library and go back and, and nobody noticed because we were in this remedial, as they called it, uh, class, nobody really paid attention or cared where you were, what you were doing. So I would kind of slip in and out and go to the library and read books and whatever. So. I probably knew I was smarter than I was kind of given credit for, but um, it, it took it took kind of just growing up a wee bit and the maturity to kick in and realise if I don't do something about this now, I'm going to end up leaving school with nothing. Uh, well, isn't that a similar story? Some of the things I, that we're hearing here. But absolutely. I, I, I think I, it, it's that element, John, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably say exactly what Colin's about to say. It's that element of... Um, the falling through the cracks, is it an education problem? Is it a, you know, you said there that the teachers almost said, I don't think you'll be able to, they were almost discouraging you to go forwards. And we hear that so often that they, they, they do that. And quite frankly, we, we asked the same question last week uh, to, to somebody that said exactly the same thing. And we wondered whether it was a psychological you know, is it an intentional thing that they were doing to try to provoke you into uh, saying, I'll show you? And in some instances it is, but uh, in an awful lot, it seems to be just no, and you're cast aside. And uh, and it's quite concerning just how frequently we've heard that story, Colin. Am I right, Colin? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about it as well, John, is that um, I I wasn't as uh, how would you say as inv- invisible as, as you said you were, but um, but if I think about where I ended up going, it wasn't the school; it was the influence in me to. I got my exams that I needed to get to uni, um, but again, that wasn't the purpose for me. Yeah, I did it because everybody said that was the right thing to do, and and I feel nowadays it's that's kind of commoditized. There's too many people with degrees that can't really use them, sure. and then there's those who don't have a degree and they maybe feel disenfranchised because they're not in the club, and so there's there's something about what is the real attainment for education now actually needs a real shake uh you know this just this incremental thinking that you get at the national leadership level it just doesn't work for me uh there's something you obviously have got great experience i've seen that in the children's panel then you can see that there's some some of the guests that we've spoken to uh, who who are in the early years part of uh, the equation and they're saying there's a lot more investment required in those early years not just at the teenage level, because the teenage level then is starting to set, start to form. But uh, so there's there's a lot in there that uh, we're learning about from from people. But it's a common denominator. And uh, but the good thing is, uh, and I'll hand back to Stuart here to continue the story. Is you figured out how to do something about that, but yourself. So so hand back to Stuart on that. So you were fortunate enough uh, to, to, as Colander alluded to, take that journey. An awful lot of folk do, as we've spoken about, fall through the cracks. But uh, from a schooling perspective, just to, to to finish on that, did you get any career advice? I know that you said that you went to your, your guidance uh, teacher at uh, one point. Did he give you sound career advice at that point? Um. The thing that kind of saved me at school, or, or kind of established my confidence, and and uh, was I was in a I was in bands, and I was I was you know out with school. I was playing punk was just coming in the scene, and new wave was coming in the scene, and I was playing with bands and writing music and all this kind of stuff. Um, so so I had almost like two personalities. I'm going to school to try and be this invisible guy, and I'm going out at night and playing you know playing bands and hanging about an old air raid shelter in the middle of Bathgate and this is with Rory Hurst and stuff. Um, so. You know, when they've done the obligatory, because let's be honest, when you're a wee boy in Scotland, you want either to grow up to be a cowboy, a football player or a, a pop star. Um, you know, they're just telling you that, uh, you know, nobody's kind of putting reality into that. Um, and I remember going to a careers, did a careers advisor come to visit the school. And, and again, back to someone we touched on earlier, but it was, it, it, it was almost like his role there that day was to tell me what I couldn't be. And you know, <laughs> you know, I kind of looked at my, I looked at my results, and at that time I was doing no grades, and I was kind of, you know, just about to set prelims and stuff. Um, but he obviously looked at what I'd been attaining in school, and so he says, "Well, you know, you, you'll not be going to university, and you'll not be going to college, and you'll not be, you know, and all the kind of, he listed half a dozen things I wouldn't be." Um, and then he sort of talked about, you know, well, maybe more practical skills, you know, and. You know, in those days at school, you had woodwork and metalwork, and you know, I was a that was a danger to myself and other people. Um, so that was <laughs> wasn't going to be an option either. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't helpful. Was probably the kindest way to put it. Uh, it just when you're saying that, uh, we interviewed uh, Ian Donaldson. He was a lead singer from H2O back yeah, in the really. 80s. And I don't know if you heard the story that he tells about going to his career advisor, but just almost the reciprocal of what you said. He said he was brought up in Govan High, 
And he said, we had this one day, the career advisor said, like, it's career advice time. He said, we're all standing outside this classroom waiting to go in to get the advice. And he said, it was my turn. And the career advisor shouts, come in. So I walked and opened up the door. And he said, the first question the advisor said is, and what would you like to be, son, when you grow? And he says, I want to be a pop star. And he said, the career advisor just looked up and shouts, Next. <laughs> <laughs> and that that just about sums it up for us but uh, he, he had a fascinating story because he was determined at that stage to prove everybody was wrong and he had a fantastic story to tell about uh, growing up and he was like you he was very much in the punk era as we all were I suppose Colin and I very much uh, grew up in that period and he, I was a wee he bit was, ahead of you though I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was he, 16 when it happened <laughs> He grew up with Alan Alan McGee from the oh, yeah. the manager of Oasis, so he was in bands with him. So he was well placed to be able to develop his uh, his thought process for the music. But from your own perspective, John, just getting back, you left school. You then began your career as a buyer within JKN Steelstock. Can you tell us a wee bit about how that came about? I I, I left school and went to the kind of local further education college in Bathgate. And done. It was a new course that they'd run, and it was based on. Uh, it was business based, so it was a, a HNC in business. But they had practical aspects to it, so they set up a company during that uh, during that year. And you know, you picked something to do. I think we made badges, and and we sold them to the we sold them to British Leyland uh, anti-strike badges because they were going on strike at the, at the time. So we, we had quite a successful year. But during that year, it became apparent that. You know, it wasn't for me. I was still playing in bands. I was still kind of, you know, I was still, there was there was always that tantalising carrot that your band could get signed and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was, at the time I was applying for jobs because I wasn't sure if I was going to college. So I'm, I'm applying for jobs, or I wasn't going to, sure if I was going to continue in college. I'm applying for jobs and I was applying, getting the evening news or the, at, at night time and sort of applying for jobs as like a welder or, or, or a, you know, a painter and decorator, not a clue. Um, my dad wasn't around the house much, so there was, no, there was not an awful lot of guidance as to what you, you would and wouldn't do. You know, my mum was kind of the breadwinner and she was a nurse. Um, and I, I actually applied and got a job. Uh, so that, that's probably not on my LinkedIn, but I applied and got a job as a trainee manager with a cooperative um, in Edinburgh. And I lasted about six weeks at that. It was just, you know, standing about all day long and, and talking to, you know, showing old woman where the bread was and all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't for me. And it also, you also had to work on a Saturday and I had always a gig on a Friday night. So, you know, I was always struggling for time and whatever else. And my mum, uh, my mum worked beside um, a guy called Jim Gallagher's wife uh, in, in Bangor Hospital. And Jim ran... A, 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 a sort of nut and bolt company uh, through GKN. Um, Jim's, Jim's uh, Stephen Gallagher, the golfer's dad. So I knew Stephen when he was a kid. Um, but Jim, Jim's, you know, he, he offered me a job, went to work for him and went into GKN as a buyer. But I would sit as a buyer listening to, I'd sit as a buyer with nothing to do because they couldn't get sales. And when I'd be sitting listening to the telesales people, I'd be thinking, they're really poor at this. They're, you know, they're, they don't remember people's names. They don't write things down. They're no logical in how they, they'd be phoning the same guy or same lady every three weeks and wouldn't remember what they spoke to them about the last time and all this kind of stuff. And this is in the days before computers and, you know, I think we'd a telex in the office. So that's, that's, that's how long ago this was. Um, and, you know, you would be sitting there and, and I says to Jim, can I have a shot at that telesales thing? He says, of course you can. 
Um, and I grabbed a couple of yellow pages and, you know, thin, I was really good at it. Within four or five weeks, because I remember stuff and I had a bit of empathy and, I would, you know, if somebody told me they're, you know, their, their, their kids were, were off school where they weren't well or there was a problem, I'd remember it, I'd write it down and when I phoned them back, I'd ask how the kids were and, you know, basic right. connecting with people on a human level rather than, excuse me, making a sell you things. And I, I kind of that's kind of what launched my career into sales because I was I was basically discovered that I had a kind of passion for that and I was quite good at it. John, back on your your journey, if we can just sort of ask you, you then sort of quickly moved, you moved into the sales side of things after you just said, but you quickly developed into senior management. Can you tell us a wee bit more how you progressed it from 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 your tele sales and into to the senior management positions that you achieved? I think there was at that time there was always this hovering thing. We am I going to be in a music? Am I going to be a musician? I'd been playing and I'd been playing and in those days every town had a miners club and a masonic club and and you know an orange hall and whatever else in this in the area I lived in. So I played with these. I basically played in club bands uh, and I would be playing you know be playing weddings or I'd be playing. So I'd be 15, 16 at the time and also playing with punk bands and whatever else. So music was always a kind of place that I could go and earn money. Um, and, and, you know, given I was the eldest, a, a, you know, quite a big family, um, wasn't an awful lot of money. There was a lot, of, you know, we had the usual social issues, um, cigarettes and alcohol and whatever else were, were quite a big part of the weekly family budget, is probably the kindest way of putting it. Um, so I recognised that sort of 13, 14, I need to earn money. Um, or if I want to have a new jacket or if I want to have, you know, a, a pair of shoes, that hardly been handed down for somebody that's 10 foot bigger than me, uh, I'm going to have to go and get them myself. So I bought a window cleaning round off a guy uh, in the scheme that we lived in, and I would go and wash windows, or I would go and wash cars with my mate, and we would pick up money, and that was, you know, that. So by that time, by the time I was at GKN, I decided, Jim, Jim's brother was Bernard Gallagher, who went on to uh, manage the Ryder Cup team, etc. So Jim would, Jim, Jim's a great raconteur, and he had lots of good, lots of good stories. And he would talk himself into really good jobs. So for about the first four years of my career, wherever I went, wherever Jim got a job, he would take me away on the day of the work. And you know, Jim was, Jim was a classic sales guy. He would go and he would go and set, you know, give him the vision and win the business. And then, but I hadn't a clue how to process it through a computer, which were dealer computers by then. Or he wouldn't have a, you know, he, he just didn't. He, he just wasn't that interested in actually doing the the kind of uh, rolling the sleeves up. So whenever he went, he took me, and I always got more money when I went and and. Um, and then again, and at that time, there was some big infrastructure things going on in Scotland. Miss Moran was being built. Um, the, the nuclear power station at Torness was being built. They were refurbishing uh, the, the, the rail bridge. So we were bidding and winning some of this work. And it was it was a good time. You know, you were winning. You were getting orders at three in the afternoon, driving in the van to go and pick it up for a machine shop in Birmingham, and then driving back to Torness and delivering it in the middle of the night. So I quite liked that I was taking the orders, buying the stuff, and then going and physically delivering it. Um, and I think that that's what sent me down the path of actually, I, if I, if this was my own company, I'd be making all this money myself rather than getting wages and going and asking for a wage rise and all of this kind of stuff. So Jim went away to work in a totally different industry, moved up to Aberdeen with his family and whatever else. And and um, I was headhunted to go and work for a, a big English firm who were moving into Scotland. Uh, at that time, Silicon Valley was just being developed. So. Uh, Scotland basically became a massive centre for computer manufacture and IT and chips and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, at one point there must have been 50, 60 of these companies in Scotland dotted all around the place. But IBM had awarded uh, the company that I went on to work for a, 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 an order 
or sorry, they'd awarded them a contract to, to implement the first ever just-in-time or Kanban-type system. So back in the days, buyers would basically put an inquiry out for five or ten items. They would put it out to six companies. They would give the, the orders to whoever was cheapest for each individual item. So, you know, they would buy the Coca-Cola for one guy. They'd buy the, you know, they'd buy the, the, the biscuits for the next guy, et cetera, et cetera. And it became, it, it became business thinking, you know, but they decided to... to, to, to to actually think about this stuff. And it became apparently, you know, to save 30 quid over six different orders, it was costing the company £500 to raise the individual purchase orders and process them. So IBM had developed this just-in-time lean Kanban type thing, and nobody else was doing it in Scotland. So the company that headhunted me was a company called TR Fastenings, and I opened up their place in East Kilbride. We started doing this JIT, just-in-time, uh, contract with IBM, and I learned such a lot for that. I, 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 the main thing I learned was that GIT also stood for Journey and Taxi because we kept being late with stuff and forgetting things. And but it, it learned me an awful lot. And I think a couple of years of doing that, and I, I thought I'm going to go and start and do this myself. I'm, I'm, you know, I've got the confidence now. I was sort of mid twenties, um, just married, had a had a had stepkids and a wee boy. Um, but an opportunity presented itself. A new company had opened up, and they sort of uh, there was a massive order on the go. And, and I kind of plucked up the courage to speak to the buyer and said, "Look, if I was doing this myself, if I left here and was doing this myself, and could guarantee you the same the same quality, etc., would you give me the business?" And they were like, "Of course we would. We do with you. You know, when you're off, or there's somebody else, or there's nobody else in the office, we don't get the same service." So that's where it started. Mm. So, so you've uh, you've got some experience of. Uh, Kanban. Uh, so, you, did you do uh, more on the Kaizen methodology? Did you go through all of that, or did you just pick up the bits for the business? No. Um, when I set up, so I set up a business in, in um, uh, 1989. Left here and set up a business called Fast Tech. Um, right. And we were so IBM had this service. Uh, IBM had this running well. Compaq had just opened up here. HP, as it later became. And what I felt was that if I started doing this with smaller subcontract companies, if I offered them the same thing, you know, a Kanban system, we would supply stuff that was already inspected direct to their production line, would save them a fortune in terms of their own inspection, their own raising purchase orders. Um, so I, I did do a bit of reading on it and followed that through, and we became very good at yeah. it. We became so good at it yeah. that um, six years later, TR bought my business because we were becoming a pain in the ass to them. Yeah. Because uh, certainly my experience at Caledonian, we were probably one of the first in Scotland to put that in an engine overhaul shop, and it revolutionised the inventory, yep. massively reduced inventory. So they, your working capital was so efficient at that point. But uh, but the thing that, that uh, was good about that sort of uh, learning was that you, we were teaching adults who were absolutely hoovering it up like sponges uh, and, and really liking it because it was practical, it was hands-on, you could make a difference in your own work area. Um, and these are things that I remember the excitement at the time, even totally. the younger ones had a lot of great ideas, but even the established experienced people in the shop were right into it, uh, saying, oh, I can, I, I've now got the power to do something. And see, see when I think of that, sort of uh, adrenaline burst that it gives to people, that's something as as well that we would love to see. How do you the education system does they do that for you? Sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> <laughs> but the education no. system uh, doesn't do that for you. But uh, but you you maybe you're lucky enough to work in uh, with people who have got the leadership or or company that embraces such a thing. 
Uh, and we think about the young ones now, it'd be a great experience for them to get some of that knowledge. Because uh, one, one big thing that we're all wrestling with at the moment is that we're not so hot at productivity either. So some companies are good at it and that makes them competitive. But as a society, it's, it seemed to be abhorrent these days. We, we're teaching kids as if you're not supposed to make money, it's dirty, it's not allowed. And that, that's nonsense. Unfortunately, today, we're not in a society where everything's equal. It's not going to be like that. But you have to compete. And the purpose to compete is you need to be viable. So so some of these basic life skills for younger ones would be helpful. But you don't necessarily need to have a degree in accountancy to understand that. You just need to have a, a, bit of, a bit of know-how, a bit of thought, a bit of learning, a bit of hunger to do it, you know? I think, I think I've think sort of built my whole career on learning that, the, the, the whole just-in-time Kaizen thing, because what I did learn is no matter what business I'm in, you look for where you can add value for your customer. What's a pain yeah. in the ass for them? What causes them difficulty? What's what's taking time up in their factory? Um, and, and, you know, or, or, their, or their offices or whatever it may be. But if you can find a smart way to take some of the burden for them and do it in a more effective way, then it makes you, it, it, you know, it, it kind of bonds you to them and it, it, it helps you develop the business in a more meaningful way and delivers more profit. I, I, I think as well, it will also it would build teamwork within the people who are working together as well. That's my experience of it. So, and it, that just permeate, permeates through the culture of the company. Absolutely. Sorry, Stuart. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to agree. In as much as it's the actual theories are often very simple and straightforward, but it's not a, a hugely academic uh, uh, thing to deliver. I, mean, I remember introducing poker yoke to uh, just a, a, a production line and just colour coding a spanner with a nut, it, it, it reduced time. You didn't have to think, where's my five, you know, my, my 10 millimetre spanner or Absolutely. whatever. It was straight to it. And it's very simple, but it was more effective. And again, as Colin alluded to, it allowed the guys in the shop floor to see that they were becoming more efficient, to see that they could then start to think, gosh, I could do something else. So that invariably totally. the organisation. So, but from your own perspective, uh, you've obviously taken some of your experiences, and I know that uh, you worked uh, in parallel to having your own business. You also spent time mentoring with uh, Scottish Enterprise, uh, John. Can you tell us a wee bit more about how that came about and what you enjoyed doing with that? Um, yeah, in, in 1996, I sold my business to TR, who I'd worked for before. Um, they're the company that originally put me or started me on that path to, to Kanban and whatever else and I became their sort of Scottish director um, and at the same time I was approached by Scottish Enterprise would I be interested in joining their mentoring program because they wanted people that had sold businesses and, and whatever else to, to kind of guide new up-and-coming businesses um, and I've done that I done that off and on for about 14 years because again I, I, I think I think all of us who are doing anything where we where, where we can afford to where we're not having to work overtime to pay the bills um, we should be doing something. We should be doing something voluntarily to help other people. I, I firmly believe that it's been you know my whole life. I think because my mum was a nurse in a mental hospital, she used to drag us along to kind of you know either play music or help out when they were doing parties or whatever it may be. But you've seen the 
you get a tangible good feeling when you help people. It's it's fundamental to us being humans. That it, is, you know, if you've got any kind of kindness or any kind of empathy about you, when you see other people and you do something kind for them or, or helpful. So and I became a business mentor for Scottish Enterprise, and and I met some real interesting people. At one point, I was mentoring to to Nushina Mubarak and her husband uh, Iqbal, who she's now. She became the head of the CBI in Scotland and became a European Parliament member and as a baroness now. But you know they had a business in the centre of Glasgow called M Computing, um, and they needed help with you know how to how to get more sales and and that kind of stuff. So you would get involved with a company maybe on a kind of afternoon a month type basis, and and I was you know either working for myself or working as a director of a company, so I could take that time out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it really interesting. And and again, we tend to overcomplicate business. I don't know whether that's business mandate to keep other people out, but we, we you know, essentially business is selling tenors for 11 or 12 quid. Um, you know, it's amazing how many businesses that I've acquired or have got involved in that are selling tenors for a fiver, and nobody's <laughs> calculating that or nobody's paying attention to that. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, we're in business to make money. We're in business to, to protect the business, look after the business and help the business grow and reinvest in it. So it was interesting seeing all these, you know, everything from, Oh, you know, there was such a range of companies that when they first, when I first got introduced to them, we're thinking, what do I know about children's clothes or what do I know about uh, important stuff for China or whatever it may be? But fundamentally, it is the same thing. They're, you know, they're bringing in fivers in a box and you have to find some way of selling them for seven or eight quid. John, I remember having this conversation back uh, before I left and before uh, Colin left, Bob Cox and Colin said uh, this very fundamental, exactly what you've just said, but he said, you've got an input and you've got an output. And if you don't make more on the output, you're doing something wrong. And it doesn't mean to say it's entirely wrong. You just put a feedback loop in and make sure that the feedback loop is adjusting it accordingly to make sure that you are making money. But there's nothing more complex than that. But uh, I remember Colin saying that to me. That that must have been a, a good number of years ago, Colin. Scary stuff, scary stuff. <laughs> but I mean, I, I've been involved in I mean, I'm actually a Six Sigma Master Black Belt, so I'm, I am very much into that methodology, John. So uh, I was curious when you mentioned about Kanban, it brought back so many memories. Sometimes, that's the other thing, is some people get carried away uh, and, and look for the complicated solutions. So in other words, it's a, it's a fascinating experiment for some people. But the truth of the matter is in business, the lesson I'm seeing, and I think you've applied it, is that you, you go for the simplest solution to the problem because that's the most efficient thing to do. You don't want to make a big experiment out of this. But in, and, and Kanban is the basics, isn't it? It's a basic flow control. And so I, I think, uh, but see some of these lessons. These, these are lessons that anybody could learn, anybody. Uh, I think there's, a, I'd also make reference to George Carlin, there's a great video, uh, an American comedian, it tells a story about somebody going on holiday and packing their suitcase with far too much stuff. So I recommend that as a, as a compelling viewing because it's hilarious, because it is my wife, absolutely in description, <laughs> about I need a place for my this and my that and my this, whereas I, I just chuck all the electric stuff in my laptop bag right so, right. so uh, but but actually kids uh, kids would love that sort of stuff and i think that you don't get that at school in the no. education system we were in and so there's something about getting that flavor of the real world into education to people earlier john, john just sort of moving on a wee bit but uh, d- d- what i would like to ask is uh, you, you've had so many roles and you've had a uh, 
a really interesting career life and the manner in which it's gone from your teachers telling you that you're potentially not going to pass exams to being CEO of Livingston Football Club and some of your own businesses that you've been running. Where do you think your life and career motivations emanated from? I, I, I genuinely, I listened to I listened to a couple of podcasts that you guys had um, had done previously, and Willie Hockey's one really struck me. There was a real resonance in when he talked about avoiding poverty. Um, you know, and when you grow up skint, and when you grow up and you can't have material things, and you or you can't have what you think you want materially, um, it, 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 it creates a driver in you. It certainly did in me. Um, and I, you know, and, and that's not to say that I'm I'm particularly flashy. I mean, I live in the same house I had before I sold my business. Um, I'm not really motivated by by being wealthy or, or you know or, or buying things or whatever else. But I certainly wouldn't want to go back to being skint, and I certainly wouldn't. And I've been there. You know, I, I sold the, the business. I sold to TR. I had to back in those days. Uh, if you wanted to, if if you didn't reinvest. The profit, or you didn't reinvest the money that you, you, you had achieved from the, the sale, you paid tax at 40%. And I'd worked for TR for two or three years, decided I didn't like working for a PLC company again. Um, but because the very fundamental thing about PLC companies, I've worked for them twice. Um, if, if, if I'm sitting in my work and I'm having a, a bad year, the pandemic happens or whatever else, um, you know, if, if we don't grow that year, I might not be going to Barbados for my holidays, I might be going to Blackpool, but I'm not having to sack three of my best managers to, to satisfy shareholder expectations. And and I found the times I've worked for PLCs, they make some terrible decisions based around the share price rather than what's best for the customer and what's best for the employees. Um, so I decided I was going to leave TR and I set up again and I had to, I had to roll over all of the money that I'd achieved because tax at that time was 40%. So this was in 1999. Um, I had to sell my house, had to sell the investments I had, and basically I had my two young boys with me and rented a house and started again with all this money in the business. So I, the, the, the business, I, I set up a new company called Fast Tech. Told TR I was doing it because I had a bit of follow-up with them. And they, whilst I told them that, they put me in garden leave and they, they registered every spell in a Fast Tech at company's house you could find. So they, they, you know, they'd done it with a K, they'd done it Fast Tech Scotland, Fast Tech Europe, Fast Tech UK, whatever. Um, and but I'd been known in the marketplace as John Fastex, so I was determined I was going to do this. And uh, set the company, or started the wheels in motion whilst I was still on garden leave. And one of those three o'clock in the morning moments, you wake up, and uh, I woke up at three in the morning, and I went, I better have not spelt it with a Q. So fast F A S T E Q. And I went away doing and go on to you know the, one of these buy a buy a website. Uh, and company's house and whatever else at three in the morning and they hadn't it and basically we set fast tech up in 2000 and that's been you know the most successful business i've lost sold four or five companies over the years that's been the most successful business i've been involved in so yeah clever mine well done oh, <laughs> that was one of the pure <laughs> middle of the night dream of, you know stuff you must have been percolating in your head but couldn't quite uh, yeah that, that's Thanks. why lawyers are not businessmen. <laughs> <laughs> no, apologies to all lawyers listening. <laughs> I think Tony Robbins says one comment that I like is, uh, money doesn't solve all your problems, but you would rather have problems with money than problems without money. And I think that sort of sums it up quite nicely. But uh, from your own perspective, uh, John, you, you you've obviously had some highs and lows in your business. Is there any that stick out, any real highs through your career and any real lows? 
I, I think I'm mixing both. So when we started, that was myself and, and a guy I worked with set Fast Tech up in 2000. And again, we would, we'd set it up to do the same sort of thing. So we were chasing business from all of the kind of um, Silicon Glen companies, IBM, Compaq, etc. We're all still in Scotland, all still operating. Motorola had a huge facility in Scotland at the time as well. So set the business up, sold all my property, put the money into the company. So the company had money, but I couldn't touch it without creating 40% tax event type thing. Um, so I was living on car, credit cards and minimum wages and all of this kind of stuff. And if we could have picked a perfect time not to set a company up to service that industry, it would have been that day. Um, basically, all of these companies decided that they were going to start moving to Eastern Europe. I was in Motorola signing a contract uh, like two months after getting the company started. And as I'm walking out, STB vans were drawn up to talk about why it was shutting. Um, you know, so it was just one of those like a perfect stormy, the, the, the worst time to start up again. Um, and I'd been, you know, fairly comfortable with money, fairly comfortable because I'd sold the business, had a nice house and whatever else, a nice income, a, a, you know, a directory, a big PLC company. And now again, I'm, I'm basically on Mars again and, and renting somewhere and, you know, worrying about where next week wages are coming or next month's wages are coming from and how I'm going to pay the staff and how I'm going to pay the, the, the VAT and whatever else. So that was, that, that was a particularly difficult time. We ended up having to follow the business out to Eastern Europe. We set up a fast tech Hungary. We set up, you know, we moved all of that work out uh, or we, we went chasing all of that work. And I spent a lot of time going back and forth to Budapest and Prague and whatever else. Um, and we decided, we saw this business evaporating and we decided in 2003 that we were going to specialise in defence. So we're going to specialise in aerospace and defence, which meant we had to jump through hoops in terms of accreditations. We had to get really smart about what we were doing, improve all our processes, upskill all our staff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that was a really good move, and that basically that basically started us on the path to to growing and developing the company. And mm. a, a particular high on that was we had a we became world class. So we're working for a wee unit in Linlithgow with twelve employees, and we became world class. We 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 developed a, a basically at that point in time in the defence industry and in the aerospace industry, there was a whole load of issues around counterfeit product being put into the the supply chain. And our customers were challenging us uh, to, you know, how did we make sure this wasn't happening? And nobody really had a clue what, how they were going to resolve it. We had a quality issue, which was quite a scary one. And it, it, basically product that we had bought and was supposed to be a specific grade of a, a material had been wrongly picked. So the certification all matched up, but the, the, the product wasn't the right product. And it was only airplanes. And it was one of those, you know, didn't sleep for about three weeks because potentially, you know, this isn't just your business going to this is you could potentially go to jail if they felt that it had been malicious and we were trying to cut corners and save money and whatever else, which we hadn't been. Um, Again, a, a, a fabulous stroke of luck, but I happened to be reading a, a magazine coming back on a flight um, and it was talking about um, XRF technology. So you could X-ray product, you could X-ray stainless steels, you could X-ray alloys, and it would give you a constituent breakdown of what the parts were so that you could marry it up with uh, either a, a fixed library product or a material certificate. And Olympus in Japan were developing this. So I got onto them and, you know, a load of, load of noise and whatever else, but we, we managed to secure one of these machines. And it, it was a, like a 40 grand investment at the time. But we became the only people in the whole of the fastener industry in, in, in Europe um, and, and, you know, probably in the world at that time in 2010 who were doing this. So it became a big thing. We started to win more contracts. We started to, you know, we were selling. I used to have it on our paperwork. We were selling peace of mind as well as selling the actual products. 
And we decided to put the company up for sale um, because we were getting opportunities. Suddenly, BA were saying to us, our place in America want you to, to, to manage their stuff. Our place in Japan, what you know, or Australia or whatever. And we were still quite a small company um, and just didn't have that kind of resource. Um, and again, I've, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I, I didn't know what private equity even was in those days. I'd never had a, I'd never had a business loan. I'd never had, never had to apply for a grant or anything. Just, you, you know, there, there was an opportunity, right? Sleeves up and just go and, and, and do it. Um, so we went out to market and we went up for sale. And um, we had, I think we had 43 or 44 NDAs. We had 15, 16 meetings because what we were doing was innovative. It was brilliant. And I really felt we had the opportunity here to, you know, to, to, to go 10 times the size of business if we could find the right partner and partner up with the right kind of company. So we, we went through a process for about a year and we ended up selling to um, what was at that time the world's biggest chemical management company, a company called Task Group International, um, who by coincidence, uh, they were on GE, the people in sight at GE, the people in sight at all of the big engine manufacturers and all of the big aerospace companies. Um, so that was a really, really, you know, that was a, a real high because it was not only just selling your business and moving on, it was selling your business to somebody, to, to, to a business that was then going to enable us to become, you know, what, what we thought at the time would become a world-class business. Didn't quite turn out like that, but that was, you know, that was a fabulous moment and it was, it was deeply enjoyable at the time. Great stuff. What, what one of the questions that we've been asking our uh, our guests recently, John, is uh, it was initiated by the Tom Hunter Foundation, wanting to try to raise the debate as to the best ways to increase the economy whilst tackling poverty. And we've been asking our guests just if you had the opportunity, suggest to input into the debate. Well, that's a good question. I think uh, I, I spoke earlier about my own education. I think I think had we had. Had we had we at schools been teaching children practical life skills and practical business skills, and I, I don't, you know, I don't mean accountancy yeah. and, and whatever else, but I remember, I remember when I was twenty odds um, being sent by TR when I first went to work for them to a, a thing called Leadership Trust, which was a, it was run in the Brecon Beacons by ex SAS guys, and essentially it was a management development thing about leadership, and it was about figuring leadership out. And again, remember, I'm coming from you know quite a shy background and just finding my feet. And and when you're in your early 20s, you're kind of making up who you are, aren't you? You have a, a head for work, you have a head for where your pals, and you, you you know you kind of you switch between your the different facets of who you are. Um, but I went in this leadership trust course, and um, it was all guys who were maybe in their 30s or 40s, and they were very successful. They were running, but to, to, you know, at that time, my perception was I was a Based assistant manager or something. These guys were branch managers, they were directors, they were whatever. And the course lasted a week, and the whole purpose of it was that it was designed to make you fail every day. Different person would lead it every day, but it was designed to make you fail. You were, you know, things you could do and things you couldn't do. And there was practical things like climbing up a mountain and you know, you to get a bike to go and find a clue and all this kind of stuff. And it's always struck me that that's really where I got my confidence to start my own business because I realised over the course of that week that I was at least as smart as these guys. And most of them were university educated, I wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. But I was at least as smart as them. You know, I found the, I found the, the clue that one is the kind of thing on the last day. Um, and I always thought if you could find a way of bringing something simpler into schools that, that allowed you to identify the guys that are going to be engineers or the guys that's going to be selling used cars in 20 years' time because of gold, because they've got good people skills, because they have empathy, because they can, you know, they can they can speak to people. If we found a way of nurturing that when children were 13, 14, 15, we would make life an awful lot easier for them. John, you had also mentioned uh, whilst you were at school, you, you, you said that you were dogging it and going down to the library. 
And I just wondered if uh, there was any books in particular throughout your career and your life that you've in, that, that have been a true inspiration to you? Books have always been a huge part of my life. I've, I've been a voracious reader since I was a teenager, as I said. The library was just somewhere to escape to. It was quiet, it was peaceful. You know, we we a very chaotic household, um, as you can imagine. And um, in school, I was just rubbish at it. I just didn't, you know, the easiest way to explain it, I guess, is um, you know, my dad would have a bet on on a Saturday with an accumulator and I could work out in my head what a pound would be getting him back. But when I was at school getting asked, you know, if it takes two guys on a bike, four hours on a train with seven shovels to get, you know, that, what time will they arrive there? And I would just spend the whole time worrying about, well, what if they've not got enough shovels and, and, and is the bike, what if the bike gets a flat tyre? And, you know, I, I, it was, it was, I just didn't have, if they just asked me seven times 12 times 14, I would have got it. But because they crouched it on this kind of this language, it, it just it just spoke to me. I, would, I was a problem solver, um, and I was coming to a problem solving place where it was I was anxious about problem solving, if that makes sense. And um, so the library was always a great place to escape to, and and you know and and it kind of, again it it kind of gave me confidence because I would be going into school to English and the stuff I was good at. I was good at English. I was good at history and whatever else. I, I was interested in these classes. Um, and it would give me the confidence that I was reading at quite a high level, even though I couldn't figure out why these guys needed 30 minutes with shovels and whatever else. But I was still, you know, when it came to literature and it came to fiction and, and non-fiction, whatever else, I, I was processing and understanding and actually recognising language and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, books are a big part of me, but and, and I still, you know, I still read a couple of books a week as it stands just now. But couple of books that really struck me in terms of business books is, and I, I don't remember the name yet, but there was one, and it was very simple, but uh, and it goes back to Kaizen, or, or goes back to Value Add, or whatever it may be, but all this, uh, the, the takeaway I had for this book was that most of us are only going to be inventing the next Apple Watch, or the next, you know, we're, we're not going to be technology people, we, these, these are done by big corporations, and, and, you know, a whole load of energy, and, and, and effort at a, a corporate level. But if your only idea for your business is to have a burger van, then have the best burger van you can. Have it clean, have 15 different sauces, have selections, have, you know, have it, have, just make it appealing to people. And, and that always stuck with me, that whatever I'm doing, we do it better than anybody else is doing it. Um, and, I, and I wish I could remember the name of the book, even to, even to tell my son, because my sons and my daughter, they all work for themselves as well. Um, but the, the one book that, that I do, I do remember, um, I do remember passing it to other people was, when I sold my business to, to Haas Group, they had a kind of ulterior motive for buying us. So, you know, they, they, all of it was, it, was, it was almost like speed dating when you were doing this stuff. They were they were the best behaved. They were, you know, they were very diplomatic. They were very impressive. Um, all the other guys wanted to, to, you know, they wanted to look at every single aspect of things. Haas, as it turned out, and they told us the day after they bought us, they wanted to buy us to fix their business in the UK. They had a really good business in the States, but a really crap business in the UK. Um, and they bought five or six or seven competitors in the UK just to take them out of the picture, but there wasn't any joined up writing. So they were all using different operating systems. They were all selling the same products against each other. They were undercutting each other, etc., etc. And they had a place in Glasgow called RD Taylor, which was in Edmondson Drive right next to Ibrox. And when you went into RD Taylor, it was like, it was like you'd, Go out the Doctor Who TARDIS and step back into 1972. Uh, they're a great <laughs> team of people, but they were all much older and they'd all worked there forever. And you know, but it was, you know, it was a classic 
no, we didn't want to do it that way. We've never done it that way. Why would we do it that way? Type thing. And I, I you know, I, I based myself through there initially, although I was running their, their London business and I was up and down the country, but I based myself in that detail. And I remember reading a book called Get, I don't know if I can swear here, but Get a Fecking Grip, it's called, but using the real word, by a guy called Mark Watt. And basically it talks about your life's your own responsibility. You know, whether it's business, personal life, your relationship with family, etc. You, you, you know, you, you, you can't sit about blaming other people for when things go wrong in your life. And it's one of the big, it's one of the most detrimental things in the Scottish psyche is this whole what's for you, no go by you nonsense. <laughs> it's really limiting for people because if, if, if something crappy happens to them, they tend to just accept that, that something crappy's happened. And it's, it's almost a psychological thing that we're no meant to be better than... Than, we, than our parents were. We're not meant to move forward. And it's deeply damaging. And it's it's something that we really need to start teaching children that, you know, you, you're only limited by your own imagination. You're, you you need to be smart about your life because you've only got this one life, you know. So, and, and there's lots of examples of that in Scotland. Bad things happen in threes. You know, I've got, I've got relatives that are looking for something crappy to happen because something else happened <laughs> yesterday. And it's, it's insane. Um, so so the, get, the Get a Faking Grip book I basically gave to every member of staff that worked for me <laughs> and said, you know, I'm, I'm giving you this. Um, if you're unhappy with it, report me to HR. But, you know, this is this is how we should be moving forward as a business. Yeah. I, I like that, actually. Um, uh, you, you've obviously uh, thought about that. You need to set your standards there, John, and uh, that's a good thing. I think the other thing that I was I was thinking about was the again coming back to the young ones. I mean, see see uh, when you hire people now. Um, I mean, there's the, the old cliche about hiring for attitude. I certainly uh, applied it when I was uh, looking at people. It wasn't always about your degree or whatever. It was about the person. You know, could I work with that person? Did this person actually have the right attitude to what I needed? Because you can have a brain the size of a planet, but if you're not going to apply it and, or you've been over selfish and lack a degree of modesty, which you need a balance between being excited about doing things and being a bit more out there, but also a level uh, playing field of keep your feet in the ground to some degree, have an appetite for change, but also have the, the humbleness to want to learn. And it's this, how do you, so see when you hire people, do you, do you look at that aspect? And, and, and also in a greater uh, question around it is how do you, you know, do you see a need for how we could do that with uh, the young people coming up through the education system now? I think um, I've got, I've got better at doing it. I used to be really really terrible at hiring people because I'd get I, I have a lot of empathy so I would always kind of feel sorry for somebody or I would think well you we could maybe quote some of this stuff but what I do now is is um I ask them to look at the business and ask any questions they want before they come front of you so look on the website give me a phone or speak to any of your staff but find something that we do that you can get passionate about that you can get excited about and that will make you want to go out of bed in the morning and come to work. Whether that's just making sure that that you, you've looked after your bit of the you know your bit of the warehouse, you've done a five S thing, or or it's because you've you've been great at customer service or whatever it may be. But you have to want to come to work every day and make a difference and have a passion for it. And if you've not got that, then you're going to struggle. You're going to be going to your work hating it. And people that go to work hating it are, in my you know in in my experience, very unhappy people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not not only on an individual basis, they are, often can be 
poor influences on others. And that's one of the biggest issues that when we uh, wrote Career Lifestyle Management, it was on that aspect of 70% of people currently employed don't like doing what they're doing. Exactly. What natural effect is that happening on business? How inefficient are businesses? But uh, just to finish on that, the, the note that you, you raised about Scottish mentality, you're getting too big for your own boots. Who do you think you are? And uh, you're blowing your own trumpet, son. Yeah. All these expressions that we use are so suppressive uh, and we have to stop that dialogue. And as Colin said, it's about making sure that you do have a rationale about where your plan is, but don't hold yourself back. So I'd like to ask a, a, another question, if I can, John. And it's, it's one that was... Uh, we, we asked one uh, of our guests and he said that... Uh, he was an atheist, effectively, and he didn't have any spiritual beliefs at all. And one of the questions that we do like to ask our, our, our guests is, and you alluded to uh, at the beginning of our conversation about taking some time out and actually reflecting on yourself. And I just wondered if you had any spiritual beliefs from your own perspective, John. Um, I grew up. I grew up uh, as a Catholic in Scotland, um, which at, at that time was quite limiting. You didn't realise it when you're a kid, but it's quite limiting in terms of um, both when you're then going out looking for a job, and then most wee towns have this alienation between the Protestant school and the Catholic school and all that nonsense. Um, and there's also the you know you also have that um, the, the the aspect to that that um, what would be the best way of putting it. Um, you you brought up you brought up feeling guilty. You know, Jesus is watching everything that you do. So, you know, you can, and you have this compulsion to be a normal person and you have this compulsion that you, you are going to fancy girls and that, you you, you know, you do covet things. And you, so, so it's an insane way to try and bring up a child because essentially you're telling them that everything they do is bad um, and, you know, that, that, that um, they're going to be judged for it someday. So, um, but I was, you know, full on into it, altar boy and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't until... You know, and then you kind of neglect it as you go older and you get, you know, but there was always a wee bit of me still, still had the, well, you know, you never know and, you know, that, all of that kind of stuff. And when I was about 40, I'd done a thing called the Hoffman process, which is, um, it's basically a, a, how would you explain it? It's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of immersed in CBT. So it's, it's based on, uh, and, and it's based on, most of us that as we carry issues into our adult life, it's they, they, they emanate from our childhood and how we were, you know, back to that thing about how invisible you were or how loved you were or, or you know, how basically how you were made to feel as a child. And a lot of us, a lot of us carry those issues, certainly see it in, in the children's panel. People are carrying damage uh, and, and whether they're self-medicating with drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be, people are carrying that stuff into their adult life. Um, and... When I come away from the, the, the Hoffman thing is mainly about dealing with your relationship with your parents um, and, and essentially seeing that they didn't do it deliberately. Most of their parents reflect, most of their parents done what was done or, or brought us up in the way that they were brought up and they didn't know what they were doing. You know, they were young people and they were making their way in the world and they were didn't have a job at that time or whatever. So there's, a, there's an element of kind of making peace with your childhood and making peace with your parents. But when I come away from it, one of the things that I hadn't accounted for was that I was really angry with how I'd been brought up in the church and how damaging religion had been and how it had limited me um, and was still limiting me, even as a 40-year-old man. Um, and from that week, I guess, I have you know, been a fully, fully confirmed atheist. And back to that thing about, you know, we have one life, we have to take responsibility for it, we have to look after people around us, you know, develop our empathy, our kindness, or whatever else. Um, 
that's a slightly different from the question that, that you asked, which was spirituality. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't believe in the afterlife or whatever. But for years now, I've, I've meditated every day. I found, I, I, again, I, you know, at the same sort of time I've done that, I, I learned how to meditate, and I still do that. And that's a nice way of. It's, it's a nice thing for, for, for mental health as well because it takes it reduces anxiety, it makes you feel better, it kind of calms you. It's uh, it's something I've found to be really worthwhile. And I think a lot of people are now talking about this stuff that everybody's doing kind of different types of meditation. But it's... Uh, so, so, so there's ways to be spiritual in your life by being the best version of yourself you can be or being as decent as you can be um, rather than it being based around a religious kind of connotation. Very well said, Joanna. I think that's great. Um, I, I actually fully agree with you. I think I, I like the fact that you can keep everything open, let everybody have their choice. And John, we've just uh, asked you about uh, inspirational books, but I'd also like to ask if I can the three people that, uh, that have influenced you the most throughout your career in life, and why. Um, so. I'm not particularly kind of TV or starstruck or film star person, but I was always very, very influenced by Billy Conley. I loved Billy Conley when I was a kid, and I still loved him as an adult. Um, I, I loved, you know, a big, a big part of being living in, or growing up in poverty in Scotland and, and no being the brightest, no going to university is you have a sense of shame, um, and, and it's indelibly struck on you. And, and I, what I loved about Billy Conley he was he was talking about my life. And, and making it sound normal, the fact that you know you you, you went to sleep with a coat earlier at night and, and that kind of stuff, and he just he just had brilliant <laughs> observational skills and, and was able to put it into a context that it doesn't really matter, you know, all this stuff you're stressing about and all this stuff you're worrying about and, and feeling that you're no good enough, that voice is telling you you're no good enough. That's a lot of nonsense, you know. You you can be you, you can you can you know you can move on for that, and and that always that. You know, I always loved comedy, and in actual fact, that you know, years ago I set up the Stand Comedy Club, and I was involved in the setup of the Stand Comedy Club, um, just because I loved comedy. There was no outlets for comics at that time. My, a couple of my mates were comedians, and we set this up as a kind of cooperative thing. So, um, yeah, comedy's always been a huge part of, of, of stuff that, and, and laughter. You know, anything that's funny, just you need laughter in your life. You need people around you that make you laugh. Um, so Billy Conley would be one, and then you know the normal stuff. Family, I had, I, you know, my. my I had an uncle, Monkleen, who was very influential in my life, um, mainly because he was a very kind, empathic, helpful guy, would do anything for anyone. Um, my father-in-law, Ronnie, um, Ronnie Garden, he was exactly the same, um, or he is exactly the same. Uh, and I have sisters who, you know, do very, they, they do very well career-wise. But again, what I admire in all of these people is their, their, their intellect, their, their, their empathy, their kindness, their ability to, to see other people, and, and you know, so. Um, and I guess the, the other the other aspect of um, my life that's been a big part of me has been music. So back in the days of clubbing, I, I just always loved I always loved guys that were musicians just for the sake of being musicians. They didn't care about becoming famous. They didn't care about uh, you know anything other than they just loved getting out and singing and playing. And um, you know I go back to my my young teenage punk days. We, I played with a load of different guys, but we the latest band I played with up until a few years ago was. A kind of Scottish Pogues type band, um, or they were like Tartan Lads with a plug stuck up their back, <laughs> thing, um, called Fiery Jack. And, and you know, we done festivals and we put, you know, and it was all traditional Scottish songs. And, and I just loved it. I, music I'd never heard because I grew up in a sort of Irish, Irish dominated household. My granddad had been Irish and whatever else. Um, so I'd never heard all these Scottish songs and they were brilliant. And um, But again, from an admiration point of view, 
you know, these guys that I went to school with, and a couple of them have, have sadly have passed away in the last few years. And we do, um, you know, a guy called Chuck Parker and a, and a guy called George Tom. We do a, a kind of festival once a year for them, and just to keep the memory going and keep the music going, etc. Because uh, they were a big part of, and, and that, that music is a big part of my life. I, I actually, um, about ten years ago, I wrote a musical based on some of the musical that we had. We've had it done, or some of the musical that we, some of the music we played. And we've had that done at the Edinburgh Festival, and we've had it done at the Bayer Theatre, and whatever else. So it's it's um, it's it kind of I, I like the balance of having some creative skills and and whatever else, and also applying some of that creative stuff to business thinking in order that you do come up with solutions and solve problems. It resonates so 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 much with what we're trying to do with it. I was going to charity with the the musical experience. Yeah, we can absolutely uh, agree with what you're saying there. John, you'll be pleased to hear this is the very last question and it's a two-parter. <laughs> he always says that, John, but beware. <laughs> John, last question. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given and what would be the piece of advice that you would pass on to the next generation? Again, I, I didn't have an awful lot of, um, just with the background that I had, you didn't have a lot of, an awful lot of people that would that offered advice, you know, it tended to, maybe to kind of wax his lyrical and and. and in the pub or whatever else, or the butchers in a scheme or the chip shop. Um, but I read a lot and I used to love, you know, I used to love, I, I, you read guys like Mark Twain and he had, you know, he, he spoke a lot, he speaks a lot about not letting your life happen to you. Go out and find what makes you happy. Go out and find joy in your life. And I think that's probably the, the biggest part of it is no matter what you're doing or if you're feeling kind of trapped or struggling a wee bit. And I, you know, mental health is a huge part of everybody's day-to-day life. We all have moments where we struggle a bit, or we all have moments where, um, you know, anxiety or whatever it may be can get can get on top of you. And I think just coming out of that and remembering that life's about joy. We're, 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 in 50 years' time, we're all going to be dead, so we have to we have to find as much joy for life as we can possibly get and cram as much joy and uh, you know. But yeah, joy and love surround yourself with people that you like and that inspire you and light you up. And I, I guess that's the kind of that, that's the kind of way I want to live my life. It's, it's a great piece of advice. Just going to say, we've almost done full circle. We start, started talking about uh, right at the very beginning, not letting life dictate to you. You go out there and dictate to life. It's so important. John Ward, thanks very much for joining us here at I Was Going To Podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. It's been a good laugh. Thank, Thank you, guys. I've totally enjoyed it.